Great to be with you. By the way, Yoel Kim Welcome has been a dear friend of ours for audio podcast. Uh, quite a number of years. Um, we have not been to visit him in Sweden, but we have met n- numerous occasions. And he's uh, one of our friends that has experienced a huge explosion in his church of uh, Muslims coming to Christ in Sweden, of all places. I, I think sometimes the sense of humor of God... <laughs> You know, how do we do this thing? I know we'll take a bunch of Syrians and Iraqis, we'll we'll move them, because they're running away from ISIS, we'll move them from sweet to Sweden, and then the Swedish church has got to figure this out. Like, what do we do, and and, um, how homogenous do we need to be? And and, and, uh, the churches that have reached out have seen hundreds of Muslims coming to faith in Jesus Christ. How crazy is that? So I couldn't, I couldn't get him to come for the whole weekend, so I will be here next Sunday. I apologize, but I'll be here next Sunday, but uh, Joachim will be with us Saturday night, and uh, so if, you, if you're just interested or you have some Swedish blood in you and you want to come and, uh, and hear what God's doing up in the Northland, uh, come Saturday night. That'll be just Saturday night only. Well, this morning we are in uh, Genesis chapter 3. I want to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 3. If you have one, if you're not uh, carrying a Bible, if you're not packing a Bible, (laughs) sorry, that's probably the wrong word, Um, it's going to be on the screen for you. So I've been so thrilled with studying these first three chapters with you uh, because they're so foundational uh, to how we think, how we live, and uh, a lot of us have, have lost our roots, and this is an attempt to get back to our roots. I have been so fascinated with studying Genesis 3 that I just, just dove in hook, line, and sinker, even though I've taught this like a lot. Uh, it's such a deep passage. I think I spent 30 hours this week just diving, diving, diving in, and one of the things I dove into was John Milton's Paradise Lost, so I've entitled my sermon that. How many of you have actually read Paradise Lost? Three, okay, four. So yeah, unless you're a literature major, you probably aren't going to do it. It's 350 years old, uh, but it's considered one of the classics of English literature because it's written in a a poetic meter, not rhyming, but in a meter uh, akin to the Odyssey or the Iliad, something like that. And, uh, but it's, it's him trying uh, to imagine uh, not only the fall, what we consider the fall, the temptation that we'll study here today, but where did the snake come from? And what, what is this about this rebellion in heaven and Satan and, and angels uh, that have left and and, and, and how is it, it's, it's one person's imagination trying to imagine it uh, for the Western world. So uh, I uh, dove into it. By the way, if, it's a great book to not only read but to listen to uh, because uh, you can audio book it. And then it, it's interesting when you're listening to it, but it also puts you to sleep. <laughs> and, and so it s- serves two purposes. So, 
Oftentimes, uh, I hear Christians, and particularly churches, when they give us a statement of faith, they start out with this chapter. And so before we get into this chapter, let me just say there's two chapters that have preceded this chapter. Many church statements of faith say, we believe that humans are sinful and blah, 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 and in need of redemption. And in, I, because I think that some Christians are never around non-Christians, they don't know how that feels to me. But because I wasn't raised uh, in the church much, I, I, it's very, very offensive for, for that to be the opening statement of humanity. And so I want to remind us that is actually not our opening statement. Our opening statement is beyond any humanism you could ever imagine. I tell people I'm a Christian humanist because you are not only an amazing person, you are made in the image of God. There is no higher statement you can ever make regarding a human being. Secondly, God's design for you and I was paradise. Uh, idyllic, uh, living, sublime, amazing, beauty and fruit and freedom and dignity. That, that was our beginning. So our opening volley sh- should be, we believe that men and women are made in the image of God and are made to enjoy the presence of God forever. However... <laughs> And then comes the however statement that we study here today. And this is equally important because these are the two things that people are trying to always figure out about us, about humans. Philosophy, psychology, uh, geopolitical uh, arena. We're always trying to figure out why, is, why can humans be amazingly good? Like amazingly good. I'm not just talking about flowers for your mothers on Mother's Day, but I mean, we can do some amazing things, but we can do some horrible things as well. So the Bible is giving us an answer to both of these aspects about the world, but about you. When I get pushback from my friends, and I hope you have mainstream secular friends, uh, because that's why we're here on planet Earth, hello, Uh, to share the good news of Christ. Uh, And I'll refer to Genesis chapter 3. They'll say something like, oh, you Christians, you got that myth going. You actually believe that myth about the garden and the snake and all of that? And my answer is, tell me your myth. Because everybody has a myth. Everybody has an idea of why we are the way we are. Think about it. I'd say, okay, there's this good and this bad in you. Why aren't you just like 100% good all the time? It's a good question. Am I right or am I right? Why, are, why has there been in the 20th century more wars, more killings, more hatred than all other centuries combined, and already in the 21st century, we are on a track record to beat the 20th century. It's called progress. 
You know, so one of the myths is that we're getting better and better. And that's what we're usually taught in school. Well, we're just getting better and better and better and better and better. I just, I, don't talk about theology. Talk about science. Show me the data. How are we getting better and better and better? Give me the data. So what's your myth? Well, the reason I'm not good all the time is because of my parents. I said, okay, that's your myth. That was the myth of Freud, that, that you, there is no original sin, but you would always be amazing if it wasn't for your mom and your dad. And we are victims of our parents. Uh, but if you move to something more current, uh, we would be good all the time if we were not born into the family system that we were born into. And it's a systemic problem because we were just raised in this system. Okay. Or an evolutionary myth. Not the science, but the, the philosophy. And that is that um, actually uh, survival of the fittest requires that I be aggressive at times. And it's humans being aggressive, conquering. It's a myth. It's, it's us att attempting to explain this duality that we see in other people and ourselves. So, but this account that we study today is the most honest, the most gritty, the most authentic attempt to not skirt the issue, but just, just to say, this is what we think. And what you're going to find out is the Bible actually teaches that, like I said earlier, we are made with the dignity, the image of God, but we now are the descendants of original sin. It's in us, and we need help. And the Bible tells us who the help is going to come from, right? So, Father, we pray that you would be with us, that you would speak to us, that you'd help us not only learn this morning, but in our heads, but that you'd help us feel uh, the pain and the hope that is in this story. In Jesus' name, amen. Innocence lost, Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say that you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree, the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it, some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The serpent comes and introduces doubt. We don't know where he came from. John Milton thinks he just came from hell 
and, and transformed into a snake for this particular uh, act of tempting Adam and Eve. We don't know. And where the Bible is silent, I stay silent because that's not what the passage is trying to tell me. Uh, so I encourage you to move on because you're going to get stuck also asking the question, why is the snake talking? And why is she talking to a talking snake? It just goes on and on and on. Uh, and you're going to miss the point of the story. You're, you're with me, right? So it's just happening. But the point that is, is interesting, one, he suddenly appears in the story of paradise. And two, he's natural. There's nothing startling. It's not like, whoa, a snake is talking. Whoa, it's a snake. I didn't, you know. And my point is, is that's exactly the way temptation happens to all of us. You see, it's not just their story. It's your story. And if you told me this morning, I just walked into the church and I don't believe in original sin, I would ask you, do you believe in your sin? Because if you don't believe maybe that they existed, this thing has happened in your life over and over again. And the way temptation happens, it comes, you were, you were fine, but now suddenly there's this opportunity, this tension, this something that presents itself to you, and it doesn't come down the chimney. It doesn't uh, suddenly uh, appear with the devil in, in red leotards and, and horns and a pitchfork. It happens very naturally. And it's that subtlety that makes us vulnerable. And so the conversation goes on with this temptation. It's natural, but it's sinister. And as the readers, we sense, well, oh, be careful. Who is this talking snake? Uh, evil is creeping and hiding behind the door. And there's only two sentences from the devil. There's only two times the devil talks. And in that short amount of time, paradise is lost. That's how good he is at uh, his evil, his craft. So he implies the unreliability of God. Has God really said? And the word really, if you can go back to verse 1. Did God really say this particular thing? Is that what we're supposed to surmise? That this, this, is, uh, this God is holding out on you. He's not reliable. Uh, you think he's good... But did he really, and the, and the word there in the Hebrew is really there, really is really there. And then the second thing that's so subtle is the word any. Did he really say you couldn't eat from any? And that word is translated either any or all. The implication is God's holding out on you. What kind of God is this? God is actually the deceiver. You think God is this amazing person that walks with you in the cool of the day every day and he's created everything to be good. But he's actually 
the one who's holding out on you. And that's the way temptations work. They do. It's a temptation to do something that you shouldn't do or to not do something that you should do. So this implied unreliability is behind Satan's back here. And the woman defends God, and she defends her freedom. But watch, she gives the snake just an inch, and that's all he needs. In verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat, you know, on contrary to what you just implied, we may eat from the trees in the garden. We're good. We got that freedom. But God did say, you must not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Now watch, and she adds, you must not touch it or you will die. She's implying that there's something in the snake's question that is actually true. God is a bit persnickety. We can't even touch it or we'll die. So now watch. The second time the snake talks is the knockout punch. That's all he needs. You will not certainly die, verse 4. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Actually, all of that is true. But it's not true the way the snake says it. Because later on, at the end of the fall, God says, they have become like us, knowing good and evil. So the snake is saying, if you eat of this, you will actually know good and evil, but it's not going to be what you think. It's different than that. Jan and I took a course when we were in college, and we were just starting to date, and we were both sociology majors. You know, that's what you become when you don't know what to do. And... uh, (laughs) And uh, we didn't know we had to take statistics. Oh. Um, and uh, so we read this book called How to Lie with Statistics. And it, it's a great read. I, I, I should be required reading, but for Americans. <laughs> because I kid you not, I, I don't care if you're blue or red um, politically, but I have counted all of the politicians, blue and red, have lied already multiple times to us as Americans by telling the truth. And what you do is you take aspects of the truth, but don't tell the rest of the truth, and you present it, and we... (laughs) Looks good to me. But that's for another day. (laughs) Salespeople do it wonderfully. Illusionists. Illusionists. You see my hands? You see my shirt? You know, I have nothing up my shirt. And, and you're just like, okay, what's he going to do? I know it's somewhere here. And, 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 and then suddenly they pull a quarter out of your ear, you know, and whatever. And you say, well, how did they do that? I don't know how that's anatomically possible, but somehow a quarter came out of my ear. Uh, It wasn't by you focusing on what was false, 
but it was by you focusing on what was true. Your, his hands, his, I'm, okay, I'm looking, I'm looking. And that's the way the enemy does it. There's something with truth in the temptation that comes to you. But there's something else that's here, and that is the issue of contentment. There's a little known verse in 1 Timothy 6 6. Godliness plus contentment is great gain. Contentment. Have you ever seen an advertisement in a magazine for contentment? Or something on, a, on the TV? Come and be content with us. Cost you nothing. We will teach you how to be. No, it just doesn't work. I've thought many times of offering a conference nationwide here at North Coast Calvary Chapel. Come and study contentment. Maybe 39 people out of 300 million will come. We, nobody buys contentment. But it's one of the ways we guard our hearts from temptation. As long as you're thinking, I could be happier if, dot, 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 we are vulnerable. But what are you happy for? What are you thankful for? So, yes. So now we come to verse 6 where their eyes are opened. When she sees that the tree is good for all of this, they take the fruit and it says in verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. Shock. That's not what they were expecting. They were expecting to know everything from A to Z, good to evil, and now they're aware of something they were never aware of. Now, I don't think the Bible is obsessed with clothing or nakedness, physical nakedness. That's not, that's not the point of the story. It, it was what they were aware of, but it's symbolic of all the rest of life that what we aren't aware of in our innocence, suddenly we are aware. And notice, instead of being aware of all of this out there, they were suddenly, their eyes are turned inward. They're aware of themselves. Listen, God can have knowledge from A to Z. God can have knowledge uh, of good and evil. Uh, but we weren't built to know something about ourselves. We weren't built to have the capacity to know who we are apart from God. This act was an act of autonomy. I could be wise without God. I could know everything without God. And we, we weren't built for that capacity. We were built to know what we know through God. And they became suddenly aware of who they were not. And they became aware of their inadequacy, their nakedness, and they hid with fig leaves. And this becomes a metaphor for the, the behavior of human beings. And this is why I love the, the Bible is so amazing. 
Because it, it goes back into the ancient, ancient past to say, why are humans the way they are? And the writer is saying, humans are driven by shame. Always, always hiding defensively. I don't want you to know who I am. Don't want you to know what I've done. Don't want you to know what I think. Because if I just blurt, blurt, blurt it out, blatantly, blurted blatantly out, what I'm thinking, uh, you may reject me, you may not like me, and I need to hide defensively, or I need to hide in a different way and come out like I'm, I'm not defensive and put you on the defensive and come to you in a party and say, hey, how you doing? Yeah. Put her there and put you on the defense and and um, what do you do and how are you and what do you and it's not that we all do that all the time but th- we have all these games that we play. So what do you do? Well, if you knew what I do and who I am, you would be amazed. <laughs> or we go hide in the party because everyone here is so amazing. I don't know how to talk to him, so I'm just going to go eat my guacamole in the corner. (laughs) We just can't be normal. And so an alien would ask, why are humans this way? The Bible is telling us. It's because we tried to be the image of God without God. And when you try to be the image of God without God, you're just the image of you. And now I'm, I'm aware not of who I am, but of who, who I'm not. It's called shame. So out of this comes all these behaviors of hiding, pretending, lying, deceiving, disrupting, posturing, posing, performing, belittling, mocking, criticizing, demeaning, arguing, defending, fighting, accusing, distancing. You could go on and on. So what do we do? It's, it's kind of like it's not what we wanted. Imagine yourself, you're going into the doctor and uh, you suspect that you might have something horrible like cancer. And you're meeting with the doctor and the physician, and you're saying, um, I would like to know, doctor, what you know. I want to know this cancer. And he does this little Yoda move on you so that you can know what he knows. You're thinking encyclopedic anatomy, and he gives you the feeling awareness of cancer. And suddenly, what you weren't feeling, suddenly you feel the cancer. Did you get your request? You did. But it's not what you thought. Or think of it this way. A little girl uh, is eating this candy in her kitchen, and her mommy says, hey, honey, you're only four years old, you've had enough candy. And she says, but I've only had the blue one and the red one. I don't know what green tastes like. 
And she says, no, honey, you know what blue tastes like and you know what red tastes like, and that's enough for now. Some other time, you'll find out what green tastes like. But I want to know now what green tastes like. You cannot know right now. And if you try, there's going to be consequences. The mom leaves the kitchen. The little girl's staring at the candy jar. And she's feeling, I want to taste green. (laughs) What does green taste like? And she weighs out the consequences and says, how bad could the consequences be? At least I would know what green tastes like. Reaches in the jar, pulls out green, and she tastes green. By the way, little kids, that's the way they describe flavors. If you ask a little three-year-old, what's your favorite flavor? They say blue. Red. So she tastes green. But what happens as she tastes green? She suddenly feels something she never felt before or was not supposed to feel, which is guilt. She not only feels guilt, but she feels fear that where is mommy? And is mommy going to find me? She not only feels guilt and fear, but she feels like hiding and she feels distance from her mom now she can't be close to her mom because if her mom comes in and is close to her her mom is going to know that she knows how, how green tastes these were all unintended things but it's going to happen and isn't that your story it's your story that's why we know what sin is When we hear preachers say it separates you from God, we know, not just in our heads, we have experienced that. So the relationship is lost. Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God who was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? So God comes walking in the garden. I love the word walking. You, you never find, you know, there's many times in the New Testament it says walk with the Lord, walk in the spirit, uh, that we're called to just walk in fellowship with God. It never says run with him. You know, I mean, I, I, I see runners sometimes uh, jogging, and I used to do it, like, how you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good. How are you doing? Pretty good. But you never see sprinters, like a full-on sprint. A nine, eight hundred yard dash. How you doing? <laughs> Great. How are you? You know, because there's a point where you can't talk. You can, you're exhausted. It's too fast. But I love the walking because it's a pace where relationships can be built. So God is walking in the garden, and it happens. It says in the cool of the day. In the cool of the day, the word "cool" is actually the word "ruach" here, which is. In the wind of the day. Now, we don't use that expression, so they translate it cool of the day. But we all know, particularly living near the Pacific Ocean, that 90% of the time, there's a cool wind that comes off the ocean. And that's why we are not like Miami. Because we have a cold ocean that's bringing this cool breeze. The Hebrew is the ruach, the spirit, the breath, 
the wind of God that apparently would come every day around this time. And it was their time of unique fellowship between man and God. And God says, where are you? And they are hiding amongst the trees that are designated for their freedom. The things that we're supposed to enjoy, all these different flavors, they're actually using them for a different purpose, to hide from the maker of these trees. But what gets me, and and it, it brings tears to my eyes, it's the cry of a broken-hearted father. We, we always had this thing. And where are you? You're hiding from me. I mean, you parents have experienced it. You're your junior higher, your teenager is doing something and they're getting really quiet and you're wondering why are they getting so quiet and, what are they, and you're trying to build relationship and, and it's this pulling away that shouldn't be. And then they confess. Adam says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Fear? You were afraid because I was naked. Self-consciousness, self-aware, in a bad way, and so I hid. And God says, who told you that you were naked? I mean, you were innocent. Who told you? And little kids, you see them, a little kid that wears glasses. They don't know they wear glasses. It's whatever. And some kid at school says, hey, four eyes. Whoa. Mommy, do I have four eyes? Hey, fatty. Hey, you know, it's just whatever. Suddenly, we're aware of what we weren't aware of. Who told you we're naked? The man said, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Ladies, (laughs) this is not a new line, is it? Oh, my gosh. Guys, let me just give you a tip to save your marriage. (laughs) Do not, under any circumstance, throw your wife under the bus. (laughs) Ah, let me give you another hint. Especially at parties where everybody's kind of starting to tease and joke around, and then you open your stupid mouth (laughs) and say... Well, that's nothing. My wife, don't do it. We need, I wonder what it would have been like if if Adam had broad shoulders and actually protected the woman and just, who taught, I did it, God. That would have been truthful too. But, He does two things. He says, it's the woman. And he says, that you made. (laughs) Oh my gosh, if there ever was the beginning of victim mentality. (laughs) God, I'm a victim of the woman and I'm a victim of you. I could have been amazing (laughs) if it wasn't for you. So he turns to the woman. And says, what is this you have done? And she says, the serpent deceived me. 
which is equally true, but it's equally blame shift. Now, would blame shifting have been a part of our society? Again, you'll never hear a politician say, you know what, I'm just a big fat mistake. <laughs> and I have made many, many mistakes. It, it will always be, uh, if there is any kind of confession, but what you need to know is blah, 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 blah. We, and they're reflections of us, we cannot own it. We cannot be naked and not be ashamed. So we scapegoat. And on and on it goes. And what skills we use to hide, to control, to somehow feel significant, to look cool, instead of letting people truly know us. So we come to the close of the story where the judgment and the mercy are found. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above the, all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, some of you are already going, so was he not a crawling animal before this? Were snakes different before this? What were they like? I would just say, don't go there. That's not the intent of the story. Stick with me. We just don't know. So the Bible's silent. I'm silent. But what we do know is that there's this curse upon now the snake. And there's this enmity between humans and snakes. How many of you just love snakes? It's just like every time you go to the San Diego Zoo. Let's go to the snake pavilion. Let's get those things that are really creepy. Have the little forked tongue come out. I love it. No, most of us are just like Harrison Ford. I hate snakes. Right? And the Bible is just telling us why things are the way they are. But there's a little glimmer of hope here. You can't miss it. In fact, it's the very first verse that has gospel in it. These words that you'll not notice if you skip over it too quickly, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The apostle Paul took note of that and he noticed that it says... I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And the word is seed, between your seed, singular. Meaning, hidden in this verse is the idea that someone's coming. Someone is going to be born to the woman, an offspring that is, is going to be bitten in the heel. Not just like we've, we've all almost been bitten by a snake and we all hope we are never bitten in the heel by a snake, but there's someone to crush the head of the snake, right? You can't miss this. That there's redemption coming. There's hope coming, and it's coming out of the woman that was 
uh, the initial perpetrator of saying, yeah, let's eat the fruit. And that's the way God works. He takes a bad story and he completely flips it. And it's going to be the woman that is the, the fountainhead of blessing that's coming forth. And so every Jewish mother that gave birth would think, is this the one? Is this the one that's going to crush the head of the snake? Is this the one that's going to finally give us paradise again and get rid of this snake? And we had to wait quite a while before Jesus was born. But he came, didn't he? And to the woman, he says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. Your painful labor, you will give, with painful labor, labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, this is not a curse. The only curse is given to the snake, a, a, a judgmental curse upon it. This is a, a speaking forth to the man and the woman of just the consequences that are going to happen. You know, it would be like I say to you, don't jump off the cliff because you're 100 feet up and you could die. And you jump off the cliff and you die. And you say, you cursed me. I said, I didn't curse you. I just told you the consequences that are built into nature if you do this kind of thing. So these are the outgoing consequences. And women, let's unpack these quickly. Uh, I think what he's saying here is your pain in being a mother and a wife are significantly increased now. Why do I say it that way? Because two reasons. One is the man it has his pain increased as well. He says, you are already working. You are already working the soil, but now it's going to be through the sweat of your brow, and, and now it's going to be through the resistance of, of weeds and, and thorns and thistles, but you're still going to be doing what you want to do. So he says to the woman, you are, you are, you are made to desire your husband... That's still going to happen, so it's right in here. It's not a curse that you desire your husband. <laughs> that should have been a joke. Um, <laughs> but in spite of the fact that it's going to be painful, there's going to be... And uh, the first childbearing word here is actually uh, conception. And then the second word is, is the word to give birth. And so I think the, the writer is saying through the whole child, childbearing process, it's now increased more difficultly. Then we come to the final statement, and he will rule over you. What is happening here? This is my personal opinion that this is not a mandate that now there is this subjugation that's now supposed to happen because of the fall, rather because of the Hebrew word that's used here, the word is inordinate subjugation, improper. You can even throw the word in abusive subjugation. It's uh, just, just like the snake crawling on the ground. He's saying, it's going to happen. And I ask you, hasn't it happened? Throughout the world, throughout society, there's been inordinate subjugation of women. It's not what God wanted in paradise, but it has happened. 
it, I think it's a good warning for all of us men to say, hey, not on my watch, not in my home, that my wife comes out of my side, not my head, my feet, but out of my side, and she's to be honored and respected, not subjugated. Amen. Thank you. Then to the man, cursed is the ground, uh, painful toil uh, to get the food that you need, uh, thorns and thistles, etc., by the sweat of your brow, until, and then the fateful statement, until you return to the ground. Death. And the book of Genesis records the death of Adam. So sad. It, you're actually going to die. And what I warned you about will ultimately happen. Spiritual death has happened. Physical death is now a part of your existence. Now, in the last three minutes, some of you are saying, what's the good part of the story? <laughs> Hold on. Genesis 3.14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, excuse me, uh, curse it, uh, no, that, that's not where I want to be. Verse 20, thank you. This is a, a joint project here. <laughs> we do this thing by committee. Um, Adam named his wife Eve. By the way, Eva or Eva, Eve, uh, the translation into Greek is Zoe or Zoe. Uh, it refers to full life. And so... That's the first glimmer of hope besides this redeemer coming, that, that the woman is the fountainhead of life. You know, it, it, it happens every time through the woman, but ultimate life is coming through the woman. So she's called Eve. The Lord God made garments for the, the, the man and the woman and clothed them, so they got rid of the uh, crazy fig leaves and uh, put some real clothing on them. And then the Lord God said, man has now become like us, knowing good and evil. Just what the snake said would happen, but knowing in a way that we didn't want to know and we weren't intended to know. So God says, we can't now have him eat of the tree of life. So we have to kick him out of the garden. So he banishes him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. So they're banished from paradise. They now live on planet Earth like you and I live and paradise is gone. And there's a, a flaming sword at the east gate in their cherubim. And you can uh, research cherubim uh, and find out they're all throughout the Old Testament. Ezekiel, Exodus, uh, they're on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, they're, uh, they're, they're imagery to describe angelic beings that protect 
the presence of God. And so as we read this, we're to ask the question, so are we forever banished from the presence of God? Is forever and ever and ever? We can't get back in. We are warned that we cannot get back in. And we try as humans. We try, we come up with methodologies. We, we tell people all the time, if you meditate so much, how much? So much. How much? In, in so much, in so many positions, and for so long, and so, then you can somehow get back in the garden. Or if you're this good, how good? This good. Morally, where, where you're so good, God looks at your life and says, whoa, I owe you heaven. How do I get back into the garden? Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. We got to get back to the garden. How do we get there? It's the dilemma, isn't it? It's this longing. We're good, we're bad. We know we were made for something more. Paradise, the face of God, perfection. How do we get there? And we come finally to the New Testament. By the way, you'll note that it's the east gate that is guarded. I didn't even know there was an east gate to the garden. Isn't that interesting? It's in the east. Isn't it interesting that the synagogue, the opening to the synagogue, always faced east? Isn't it interesting that the temple in Jerusalem faced east? That the golden gate that is predicted that the Messiah would one day come through Ezekiel is the eastern the only gate on the east side, the eastern gate. All symbolic of getting back to the presence of God. So, what happens? Well, real quickly, Messiah comes. He comes as the face of God, the New Testament tells us. He comes in the full image of God. We lost the image of God. It's marred. None of us look like God but Jesus comes in the full image of God. You want to know what God looks like? Read the Gospels. And he dies for you. He says, it is finished. And the moment he says, it is finished, the veil is rent from top to bottom in the temple, saying, you may now come back into the presence of God. You couldn't do it. You can't get in. But Jesus open the door for you. Oh, then what do I do? Well, go meditate. No, no, well, what do I do? Go be good at it. No, no, no. You put your faith in the Son of God. We put our faith in the snake that his words were true and they were lies. Now you put your faith in the Son of God, the second Adam, and salvation begins. You are forgiven of all of your sin. No more hiding. No more shame. Shame is not a tool of God. It's a tool of the devil. 
You are now free to become the person that God wants you to be and that you've always wanted to be. Who is that? Become that person. And you're invited back to paradise. And you are being transformed through the Holy Spirit back into the image of God. That's our story. That's our amazing story. And it's happening in your life, in your life, in your life. In just a moment, I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. We're going to collect this building offering we've been talking about. But before, I'm just letting them know. Get ready, guys. But as your coach, I want to just help you today to lift the, the shame off of you, that sticky substance that you've carried all your life. If only I was something, if only I could be, all the hiding, everything else, and let you know, as best we know how, we want this to be a shame-free zone. No play acting, no getting religious on each other, but just you becoming the you God intended to be. And nobody's perfect here. We're all sinners. Admit it. Saved by grace. So it's a shame-free zone and it's a forgiven zone. And we're free now to begin to learn to love the way God intended us to love and to be to become like God again in his image. Wow. That's, that's the place I want to be. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, thank you for your work in our lives. Thank you for your story. It's the gospel story. It's, a, it's the best story. And Lord, we don't just blame and point the finger at Adam and Eve, we realize, Lord, it's, we've repeated this garden story so many times. Thank you, God, for delivering us from shame. Thank you for delivering us and forgiving us of our sin. And thank you for sending Jesus. Lord, we freshly put our trust and faith in him, the perfecter and author of our salvation. What a story. And truly, Lord, it is finished for letting us back into your presence once again. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.